2: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
1: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with your Bosa and John Fort. Lot to get to today. Meta cutting 11,000 jobs. Disney's dismal quarter, the crypto fallout after FTX and Binance and Elon Musk selling $4 billion worth of Tesla. This hour, the CEOs of crypto exchange eToro, Akamai and Jen, formerly Norden LifeLock, talking earnings. But our feed this morning begins with those new developments out of the FTX and Binance deal. And the headlines are flying even
3: as we speak, Dee, They are flying and Bitcoin has dipped below that 17,000 mark, recovering a little bit. Ether down nearly 12 percent. Um, More headlines, certainly, with that FTX Binance news. Let's get straight to our first guest, David Friedberg, VC, on this. Uh, David, thanks for being with us. I mean, (laughs) wild 24 hours. It turns out that the white knight, the so-called J.P. Morgan, the Warren Buffett of crypto, has turned out to be just another over-leveraged crypto bro. What does that mean for the industry? Walk us through how this all plays out.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the current party line, and I think folks are really um, anxious to dig in to what really got us to this point. How much of this was a failure of diligence on the part of the investors? How much of it was a bad actor making um, kind of malicious decisions and, and misrepresenting what he thought was going to happen uh, and misrepresenting to his clients how he behaved and how they operated? So there's still a lot to uncover. The folks I've spoken to believe that this is really more of a kind of isolated bad actor incident. But there is obviously a broader question that everyone's asking now, which is, where are the regulators? And so much of the behavior and the actions that may have led to this likely took place offshore. And a lot of the offshore regulators then allowed kind of isolated local regulation that ultimately spilled over into this kind of international problem. Uh, And so there is certainly going to be much more concerted, I think, um, uh, international cross-border efforts to try and regulate now. And I think a lot of people inside the industry that want to see the industry succeed are saying that that's exactly what they want to see happen. It is really constructive regulation that's cross-border uh, that allows but, this industry to thrive and grow from here.
3: But this is such a failure of regulation. When you ask the question, where are the regulators? Well, they're in Washington talking to Sam Bankman-Fried. He has really been the face of the institutional crypto sphere. He's the one talking to regulators. So his downfall... Bad actors maybe, but I think the key here is overleverage in the system is just absolutely rampant. I don't know if you can trust that CZ and Binance aren't overleveraged as well. So, I mean, more than that, it has to go beyond regulation, right, David?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a real question on how these uh, exchanges operate. Look, I mean, regulated marketplaces, regulated markets, regulated exchanges in the U.S. under the SEC, uh, there are really strict controls on what the, the, the marketplace, the exchange can and cannot do. And the, um, the the dealings that happened between the principals at some of these exchanges and some of the call it market making uh, vehicles that they had set up off exchange seem to have been a big motivator here. And under U.S. regulation, that would likely not have been allowed. And so again, the the, the leverage is always you know give give people an incentive, um, and uh, you'll you'll see them act on it. But I think that the lack of controls allowed this incentive to bloom. Um so you know, very likely, I think a lot of folks that are institutional in nature, thoughtful in nature, long-term investors in nature, are going to sit out this crypto marketplace until they see the right uh, transparency into what's going on and the right regulation uh, take place.
2: David, here's my frustration, is that you have, on the one hand, a lot of the crypto community saying, "Give us clear regulation. That's what's safe here." The problem here is that all of these you know crypto institutions went overseas and set up where they weren't regulated clearly enough. And then you've also got a lot of the crypto community saying, don't regulate us too soon. This is financial innovation. You have to let a million flowers bloom and, and just kind of let us do our thing. Meanwhile, you have this pattern of so many different players in different parts of the crypto ecosystem failing and failing in a way where they're not able to deliver what they seem to promise to investors and to customers, whether we're talking about Stablecoin, now we're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried. That There seems to be rot in the crypto ecosystem, and I'm not sure we can pin that on regulators.
4: Yeah, I mean, you give someone a chance to go from, you know, having no, 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 no money, no net worth, to having $16 billion of paper net worth in three years, you're going to see a lot of other people try and do the same. And then you're going to see them do it maybe without the same principles that the first person did it. And all of a sudden, you have this very slippery slope. And this is why securities regulators exist. It's because in the past, when folks realized they could sell something to a retail buyer, they could make money doing so, then all of a sudden, all of the snake oil started to emerge. And I think that's what we've seen here, is that there's a tremendous push to very quickly make a lot of money, and retail was always there to pick it up, and securities regulators emerged to try and protect retail investors and to try and protect those that had their capital taken away from them because of these kind of you know schemes. Um, and I think that that's a, a kind of a really key... Uh, pivot that's about to happen here uh, is that there has now been that moment of loss. There has now been that kind of the seas have receded. We saw the rot underneath. And now it's like, well, wait a second. The system, it's not the the million flowers that bloomed. It's not the good ones that bloomed. It's the ones that took the most money that bloomed and the ones that ripped people <laughs> off the best that bloomed. And now everyone's saying, well, let's go ahead and start to regulate and maybe reinvent. So I think the tides, I, I think the um, the pendulum may shift a little bit on that point. Uh, and we may start to see um, you know, the, the general kind of, hey, distributed, open source, let everything happen, folks say, well, well maybe we do need to have some, some boundaries here. Right.
1: Well, I would argue that um, regulators It was about public commentary. It was about white papers. It was about framing discussions. It was about uh, coordinating with industry players. Do you expect not that we're on the cusp of some brand new innovation? Maybe we are. But do you expect the next time around, the next innovation cycle, regulators are going to be quicker to act uh, with less public comment?
4: Regulators have never been quick to act. So I I think that in both directions, uh, in terms of uh, being innovative or in being responsive, And so I don't think so. I think you will always see a strain on the system. The system breaks. Then the regulators come in, and they put in these controls and systems around it. That's all. You know, I mean, you can go back to, um, you can go back to the 1930s, and ultimately, that's how so much of um, securities regulation around the world, uh, and, and and all regulators around the world have really kind of built their rules is not ahead of the curve and not with the curve. It's usually after the curve. And so, you know, generally speaking, for innovation to take place. There's, there's going to be a couple of points where the markets break, whether or not they come back is TBD.
3: David, you're sounding optimistic, and I'm having trouble understanding that. You're saying things like, OK, the tide has receded. We're seeing who's swimming naked. But doesn't this latest incident just tell us that the tide is far from out? There's going to be so much more to get flushed out here. How does it instill confidence in anyone who is looking to be involved in this space or invest in crypto? If you can't trust FTX, how can you trust Binance or anyone
5: else?
4: Yeah, I, I don't know if you can right now. Again, I think it's a function of regulators coming in and now people looking to regulators for confidence. Whereas before, I think folks expected that their own diligence or the diligence of the shareholders in those exchanges um, kind of validated. But look, it, this is uh, this is certainly not a market with confidence right now. So, and by the way, I'm not optimistic in a sense. I'm I'm just speaking to what I think will play out. I think what will happen is regulators are going to have to come in. I think there may be some folks that actually go to jail, and I think that ultimately. Um, In order for this market to have a shot at having legs uh, or for these markets to have a shot at having legs, you're going to need to see regulators play a much more active role than they have historically.
1: We're going to talk later uh, some more crypto with the CEO of crypto exchange Toro. But, David, we want to turn to Meta while we have you. Uh, 13% of employees now gone as Zuckerberg cuts costs dramatically and continues to pour money into his passion project, the Metaverse. I'm seeing a lot of commentary from the sell side today about an olive branch from management. The first sign he's willing to acquiesce to shareholders' desire to invest more judiciously. Is that how you read it?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, buy side folks I speak to think that it's a step in the right direction. But remember, Meta would need to cut half their employee base to get back to the headcount they were at pre-COVID. And so you really need to ask yourself the question, what was the outlook for the business pre-COVID? What did they expect would happen? And how much of that has or hasn't been proven in the past two and a half, three years? Based on that, you could probably take a much more first principled approach to saying what's the right headcount, And that's what I think has really been lacking in Silicon Valley the last number of years during this boom cycle. It's really a first-principled approach to workforce engineering. And now there's a big rewrite on, which Elon has really demonstrated this week, on saying, how many people do you actually need to do the things that you want to do? And in part, we've gotten to this point because of bad governance, super voting, evergreen stock grants, boards that don't pay attention, but also the war for talent, where any great candidate you can get in the door and you can hire, you should hire, particularly during a growth phase. Now that growth has stalled, profits have stalled, multiples have shifted, Everyone's coming back and saying, maybe we should think about workforce engineering from a first principles basis and ask ourselves the hard question that private equity firms usually ask, which is zero based budgeting approach. How many people do we need to execute the things we need to, uh, to execute to achieve our goals over the next couple of years? And that's what I'm hearing by side asking for, not just from Meta, but from all the companies that are investing so significantly in headcount in, in their employees through both stock and cash comp.
2: Well, David, too many people believe their own hype, right? And this is the through line from crypto, which we were just talking about, to uh, Meta. And we can even draw it through to Shopify and so many other things, uh, you know, e-commerce, this digital boost uh, through the pandemic, people believed, and Zuckerberg wrote this in his letter to employees, that momentum was going to continue, but it didn't. Doesn't mean the underlying case for a digital future is false, but too much belief in the hype, but that brings me to my issue with even this cut. Until Zuckerberg cuts metaverse spending, I mean, if he does, these layoffs aren't discipline, they're a sacrifice, right, to the
4: metaverse. I think that's fair, Uh, maybe from his point of view, uh, that would be a fair statement. I I think one of the things that's lacking, uh, at least what I hear from BuySide, is that there is this, call it nebulous objective, and it's so far out, and it's so cloudy on what we're trying to get done. And at this point in the cycle, when you have 10-year treasuries at, what, 4 or 5%, you have to demonstrate what you're going to return and when in order to justify spending in this day and age. And so you really have to show a timeline. You cannot have fuzzy timelines with some point in time in the future, we will maybe do something that looks a little like X. There has to be a milestone-based approach to achieving your objectives and a really kind of clear message on what those objectives are in order to validate that spending and get buy side to come along with you. The absence of that makes folks say you're spending too much. I'd rather see that money come in my pocket through buybacks and dividends and so on. Uh, And I think that's what's really kind of causing a lot of this tension right now. Mm. And it will cause a, a massive change in governance across Silicon Valley, I believe.
3: David, before we let you go, we got to ask you about Elon Musk um, selling off nearly $4 billion worth of Tesla shares. We continue to chart the impact that that Twitter acquisition will have on his other public company. Um, your buddies, Sachs Calcanis, they're in the room with Musk. What can you share about what's going on, if not exactly what's going on, the time that it's taking and how that could potentially impact Elon Musk's public company.
4: <laughs> I have nothing to share with you on that, Deirdre. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, look, I think, obviously, are all that I know is what I read. Are you saving him for the pod? <laughs> no, I, I, look, I have, um, I have no knowledge of what my friends are doing or not doing uh, with respect to Twitter and Elon and so on, in all honesty. I think, um, uh, you know, I just then observe what investor. I see in the news.
3: As an, as investor, an investor,
4: then. Yeah, I, look, I mean, as an investor in Tesla, obviously, having the the, the largest shareholder, the CEO, selling shares to fund another project. I mean, you do that with any other person in Silicon Valley, you're gonna have um, really hard questions being asked by, by investors, uh, which is, show me how this benefits my stock, in, in my, my shares in Tesla. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know the right way to answer that, but but it's certainly begging a lot of questions. Look, he's got a very dedicated shareholder base. He's got a very dedicated mm-hmm. customer base at Tesla, and it's pretty clear folks have gone along with him for the ride for many years. Whether or not this jars them, I don't know, but it's certainly yeah. gonna beg the question for some folks.
3: Something we're all wondering. David, thanks for being yeah. with us today. David Friedberg.
4: Thanks, guys.
1: Let's turn to Disney this morning. Shares are down, as you know, after missing on EPS and warning that streaming growth could taper. For more, let's bring in our own Julia Borston, who had a good look at the quarter. Julia, we talked to Kramer this morning about just the number of metrics on which they missed, and certainly ARPU was among them.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think what's key here is that the losses at the streaming business more than doubled from the year ago quarter. And that this is a company that has been so focused on streaming growth, growing that top line streaming subscriber number. And though that number did exceed expectations, we're in a total moment of shift right now. And Disney and the other companies are really reckoning with the fact that you cannot grow at all costs when it comes to streaming subscribers. You really have to shift the conversation and think about average revenue per user. Think about how much money you're spending on content and making sure that that's all justified. And looking at that stock down 12% uh, here, guys, you have to wonder what this next phase is gonna be like and how much they are gonna have to dramatically pare back spending in order to get those costs under control.
2: So, Julia, uh, if we we are wondering what they're gonna have to do, what, what does this mean? Does this mean fewer deals, with um, maybe carriers and other you know, outside sources of uh, user growth to try to goose the top line, fewer bundles and more focus on, hey, who's, who really wants this content and is going to stick with us for the value that we provide?
6: Well, I think it's the same type of shift that we've seen from Netflix. Netflix said, don't think about the top line numbers anymore. Think about that the profitability of each of those users. And interestingly, just have to point out that Chapek said that this was the peak quarter for losses In the division, in the streaming division, they're still on track to reach profitability in fiscal 2024, assuming we do not see a meaningful shift in the economic climate. Now, of course, we know there's a lot of economic uncertainty right now. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how, if there is a meaningful recession, meaningful pullback in consumer spending, how the fact that there is this proliferation of streaming services, and now these ad-supported services, of course, we're waiting for the Disney ad-supported service to launch um, in about a month, to see how those impact Overall spending, not just on streaming services, but also on movies, and you know we're having this conversation right now ahead of the launch of the um, of the Black Panther sequel that's coming out on Friday. So this is an industry, uh, the media industry, has obviously faced massive upheaval, upheaval, transformation with this focus on streaming. But now they're having to reconfigure how they prioritize streaming, and we'll see how the introduction of streaming disrupts their other businesses, such as the theatrical business, um, when some of these big tent poles
2: come out. Indeed, Julia Borston, thank you. More Disney later on Tech Check, plus the CEOs of Akamai, crypto exchange eToro, plus Jen, formerly Norton LifeLock. Tech Check is back after a quick break. Take a look at Akamai. Shares are up nearly 6%, delivering a beat on the top and bottom lines in Q3. With us now in a CNBC exclusive the co-founder and ceo tom layton tom welcome um so first of all did, did i hear you this podcast is supported by fedex dear
7: small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do so you need a business partner just like you like fedex who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you
2: million worth of Akamai stock over the next six months. Is that a call on the macro in particular? Because, boy, there's a lot happening in the macro uh, affecting every stock, not just Akamai.
8: Yes, you heard correctly. And, uh, of course, there is a very challenging macroeconomic environment. Uh, But I think Akamai has a tremendous potential for growth, especially now as we embark on cloud computing. Uh, following the acquisition of Linode and the investments we're making there. And of course, we already have a market-leading security business and content delivery business. So I am very optimistic about Akamai's future growth.
2: Now, my understanding also is that you've taken down uh, more than 500 open positions that you have. I don't know how much that equates to a hiring freeze, Um, but also that you're shifting resources to security uh, away from delivery. Can you talk about how you're able to do that, the extent to which you're able to do that with employees internally, and um, how that how that actually translates into what you're able to deliver.
8: yeah, that's that's correct. And uh, you know for example, Akamai has enormous capabilities in terms of people power uh, and knowledge for deploying very large scale platforms from our delivery. Uh, platform, and you know we're going to take that uh, know-how and those people, and they are now going to be growing out and deploying our cloud compute platform. So very similar kind of skill sets, uh, you know, in terms of arranging for the colo, and getting the servers, putting them there. We've already connected up the uh, Linode regions with our backbone. And over the course of the next year, we're going to more than double the number of core cloud compute regions, and we're going to introduce a new notion of sort of a lighter weight Uh, distributed compute region. We'll have several dozen of those next year uh, where you get containers as a service much closer to where a lot of businesses have their data centers and where their end users are. So it's a very natural capability for Akamai to take what we've done and the people that have been working on content delivery and now build out a world-class compute organization.
1: Hey, Tom, you mentioned on the call... um... Sort of the seasonal variability you sometimes or often see in media in Q4, and online retail in Q4. Does this year look much different than any other?
8: Uh, it is a seasonal uh, business, although everybody has their eyes on the, the global macroeconomic situation. are uh, also obviously very worried about what's going on in Europe with the war there and what might happen this winter. Uh, so there's, I would say there's uncertainty in general in the global macroeconomic environment. Uh, you know, ironically, it could provide a little bit of a tailwind for us on the compute business. Major enterprises seem to be in a position where they really need to cut costs, particularly in important verticals for Akamai like media and commerce. And we can help them do that uh, with their compute bills uh, now that we have a, a, the compute service based on the node.
2: Give investors some color, if you will, on what you're seeing in particular in Europe, you mentioned the war in Ukraine, um, interesting developments there even today with Russia pulling out of part of the Kherson region, which might imply uh, along with perhaps uh, Democrats in the US faring better in midterms, perhaps able to supply more aid to Ukraine going forward than they would have otherwise, that this, law, uh, this, this war could go on for longer than some people had thought.
8: Well, obviously, we'd all like the war to end. It's a horrible, horrible situation for the people there. Obviously, we're concerned about, you know, the energy situation. Uh, the inflation is high in many of the areas where we do business and have employees in Europe. And uh, we're worried about a recession. And none of those things are, are great for business. Uh, you know, so there, there is concern, I think, particularly in Europe. And we're hoping things can get better.
2: All right. Tom Layton, thank you.
8: Thank you.
1: When we come back this morning, how layoffs at Meta will impact the stock price. We'll chat with Michael Nathanson about that. Plus, check out shares of Upstart Holdings down double digits on the heels of earnings, now down nearly 90% on the year. You can read more about that quarter on CNBC.com. We're back in a
7: moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
0: I'm Sylvana Hanau, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Kansas Democratic governor has narrowly won re-election. Laura Kelly focused her campaign on the economy and tax cuts and a desire to work with Republicans. She can start with Chris Kobach, who will be the state's next attorney general. Kobach co-chaired former President Trump's controversial voter fraud commission. Russia's military says it is withdrawing from the key Ukrainian city of Kherson, the only regional capital captured during the eight-month war. The pullback follows days of civilian evacuations from the area. The loss of Kherson would be another humiliating setback for the Kremlin. Ukrainian forces have not immediately confirmed the move. The threat of a railroad strike has been postponed for now. The Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees District, one of the two rail unions that has not yet reached an agreement with the companies, is moving its strike deadline back from November 20th to December 5th. This would put it on the same negotiating schedule as the signalman's union, the other union still in talks. Federal paid sick time remains the sticking point in the negotiations. Guys, I'll send it back to you. Oh,
1: Silvana, thanks. Let's turn back to two of the bigger movers of the morning. It's an inflection point for Meta and Disney. Disney's out with disappointing results, while Meta cuts 13% of its staff or 11,000 employees. Our next guest covers them both. Moffat Nathanson's Michael Nathanson joined us this morning. Michael, thanks for the time. Man, the line really leaps out when you say you're talking about the Disney EBIT guide for next year versus your own forecast. And you say rarely have we ever been so incorrect in our forecasting of Disney profits. What,
9: do you, what happened? Carl, it's a good question. Um, you know, we're neutral on Disney. Um, what happened was losses at streaming were higher this quarter, and the losses will be higher year ahead. Um, but, you know, as we talked about for a while now, it's a spending-driven business. You have to spend more to get revenue growth. And the spending that's being done—it was higher than we thought—and we'll follow through in 23. 20, you know, 22 is the top of their losses, but 23 will be large as well. And then on cable networks and linear TV, cord cutting is now negative six percent a year. It's really collapsed. People are cutting the cable, board, you know, bundle, and that affects Disney um, pretty sharp, you know, severely because of ESPN. ESPN is a very expensive programming package. And it's very high fixed costs, so as they lose revenues, there's a real collapse of profitability. So those, those two things came together even worse than we expected.
1: Right. Are you calling for peak uh, streaming losses? Because there's a lot of notes on the street today sort of defending uh, the park's resiliency, uh, their IP, the, the way they could benefit long-term from Omniverse or Metaverse. Uh, but those are longer-term plays.
9: Yeah. Um, so our concern is this the parks have done great, but there's a consumer slowdown. We see it, we know it. The parks have not shown that yet, but in 2023, the risks are to the downside. So their most important engine of profit growth the parks to us is at risk of slowing cyclically. Uh, Streaming, we've always debated with folks whether or not it's a great business. We we won't know an answer for a while, but the losses will come down. But the question then is, what's normalized profitability at streaming? And we're not sure it's gonna be a you know a great business. So we have doubts about where it ends. And then cable networks and linear is you know is in a structural decline. So our cautious view, I think, is really warranted here, especially ahead of any type of slowing consumer spend on parks in twenty-three. So I think being patient and being cautious has been the right call. We continue hmm. to be that way because our first rule of thumb in media is that earnings revisions drive stocks, and we think the risk still is the parks could weaken and people don't have that, including ourselves, in, in the models for 23.
3: Michael, I'm trying to parse through your words here. So you do believe Chapek when he says that this is peak losses?
9: It's peak. Okay. Directly, yes, it's peak losses. If they it to be peak losses, the question really is, what's, what's the top line growth rate from here, right? Yeah. You know,
3: we, like that could cost at- them is what you're saying. If they decide that this is peak losses, that could cost them what, in market share later on?
9: right you know now you have to drive pricing right so Disney plus is underpriced we totally agree with that there's a price increase coming in December long overdue but then what you see happen in streaming is as prices go up in L- other places like Netflix there's been a slowdown in subscriber growth right so there's got to be a trade-off here as pricing goes up, will there be a top line slowdown um, over time right you get a price increase and then subscribers start to to really slow down So our problem to your question is peak losses we got it. Profitability somewhere in 24. But where does this business rest out, right? What's normalized profit margins? You know, Netflix always preached above 20. They're now below 20. Um, no one else is, is close to that. If you look at it on a cash flow basis, these businesses are not very cash generative, which is a problem. So we are still waiting to find out more about where these businesses settle out in terms of long-term profitability. We know where cable networks have done, where those businesses look, and these are not cable networks in terms of profitability.
2: Yeah, that's the interesting trade-off, Michael, is the the way I'm looking at it, and tell me if you look at it the same way. So cord cutting is hurting revenue, but streaming and the investment in it, the growth of it, is hurting profits. And so you're moving people from one thing that was very high revenue, high profit, but not the future, to something that is the future, but it's unclear what the business model is. Now, this is way different from the metaverse because people clearly want to stream. It's not clear whether people wanna live in the metaverse, but it's also not clear whether advertising is gonna rescue this model, especially not in the near term uh, with the economy weakening, right?
9: Yeah, no, you, you have it right. And the nice thing about the old model of linear, you know, CNBC always had live news, live, live information every day. You had a constant model, but other people programmed sporadically to maximize profitability, right? There wasn't a new movie on every night on CBS because they couldn't afford that. In streaming, you're battling it out with Apple and Amazon and Netflix who have a different incentive you know, structure. So it's hard for the media companies to play in that game because they all came from a place of rationality where people didn't overspend and they all kind of had shared economics. It's a much more difficult pivot. And that's been our, our talking point forever, right? And now what's happened is you have had a collapse in linear. So quarter cutting is really accelerating during the pandemic and now during the slowdown. So you can't control the speed of the you know the collapse of linear, and you can't you know slow down the investment in streaming because that's your future. So all these companies go through earnings season. They have all the same predicament, which is how do they navigate this this transa- you know transition without blowing up their business? And unfortunately, the economy is helping them or really hurting them in this transition. It's. it's causing the core business to weaken faster than they wanted it to as a pivot huh.
1: uh, speaking of transitions really quickly on meta uh, the general tone is that an olive branch from Zuckerberg uh, there's downside to the operating expense guide even maybe some progress on ad signal uh, could be a revenue tailwind next year what do you think
9: yeah call me crazy we actually like meta and we talked right before meta's earnings came out I remember talking this with Carl he's like you know What's happened here? And I think Mark addressed it in the email last night. 22 turned out to be a weaker year than anyone expected, right? The 21 comp in digital advertising was incredibly strong. We had a bunch of headwinds in 22 that will continue in 23. And their costs were misaligned, right? Really misalignment. Now, I can't defend the meta reality labs investment, right? That to us, as you mentioned, it's not streaming. It's it's hard to put value against it. So we take it off of our valuation, but the core business is not nearly as bad as the street thinks it is, right? And last week's or two weeks ago, their earning update really got people very upset. I know Jim Cramer was very upset about it, but our thinking was, you know, Mark has to be rational. He has to be rational because his employees need the stock price to work. You know, he needs to maintain quality, you know, engineering teams, and they're not going to be happy if they feel they've lost all their wealth. So this, to me, is a pivot to rationality. It's what I hoped, what I expected. We didn't downgrade the stock after that that call. I think it's I remember the cheapest thing ever, and that's 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 a buy for us.
1: Pretty fascinating. A couple of big stories there, Michael. Uh, appreciate the help with it as always. Good to see you. Thanks.
9: Good to see you, Thanks. Thanks. Michael Nathanson. Okay,
1: as we've been talking, uh, NBC News uh, is projecting that Republican Ron Johnson uh, will win reelection to the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin. As the picture on the Senate begins to fill out a little bit, uh, D, but obviously some big mm-hmm. decisions yet to be called.
3: Absolutely, we'll track all of them. Up next, affirmed down big after posting results. More on what CEO Max Levchin told Kramer last night when Tech Check returns.
2: It's got a gut check on Affirm, the fintech company, hitting record lows this morning, down 18 and a half percent after missing on quarterly estimates. CEO Max Levchin joined Mad Money last night, saying the company prepared for macro headwinds and can outperform peers.
3: The
9: market has to figure out at some point that we are different. If you look at the credit results you just referred to, we are managing to the number that is exactly what it was before the pandemic, which you know before.
2: uh, for everything. And uh, that is because it's no accident. It's by design. We're running the company to goals that we set for ourselves. And we have the kind of controls that I think a lot of our peers in this space, frankly, do not to hit the numbers that we feel we must hit. We'll see if that model holds up in a slowing economy, what the defaults look like Uh, right now. As I mentioned, Mm -hmm. the shares are down a little over 18 percent, D.
3: Right. And key to note that a firm uh, does not have a banking license interested in how that helps or hurts them. As we take a break, uh, as we head to break, excuse me, take a look at Bitcoin and Ether along with Coinbase and Robinhood, all plunging double digits, except Bitcoin down 6%. After the break, we will speak to the CEO of a major trading platform for more on how the industry is trying to calm some of this contagion. We'll be right back. Let's come back to crypto. Lots of developments this morning. Reports suggesting that both the SEC and the CFTC are now investigating the FTX empire over its handling of client funds and lending. Crypto exposed stocks and coins. They are tanking dramatically this morning. Let's hear from someone who's directly impacted, the U.S. CEO of crypto exchange, Etoro, Lule Demise. Lule, thanks for being with us today. We had this conversation at the top of the show. SBF, FTX, they were supposed to be the white knights of this industry, the ones working with regulators. If you can't trust them, why should anyone trust any other exchange, yours included?
5: Well, first of all, you know this is an unfortunate situation, and you're right in the sense that you know trust is a central premise of any exchange or platform that should be used. I mean I think that ultimately context matters um, and I do think that we should let this sort of dust settle before we get into the vitriol of what happened here but ultimately, there are plenty of exchanges just like ours and platforms that secure their customers' assets that don't, you know, do segregate assets, um, do not commingle. have one-for-one dollar uh, positioning. So I think that it would be a mistake to try to color everything under two players, albeit very consequential players. What context do we need, though,
3: beyond a lack of transparency here? And why can we just believe that others are better? Lule, you have a global business as well, right? How can investors and your customers be confident that you're not over-leveraged there and that could affect your U.S. business?
5: So let's just be clear. We do not offer leverage on our platform. Um, We don't use leverage. We don't uh, lend our customers assets. And one of the things that has been beneficial for us in the US is that we are a multi-regulated platform. So we have a broker dealer that is governed and overseen by SEC. And Finra, we have we have state licenses and state reg- regulators, so it's a highly regulated environment. However, what we are missing is a central thesis, so national regulation, right. which I, I do agree is necessary for standardization and for leveling the playing field, as you say to create transparency. I think the key will be though, not to let the vitriol be the driver of that regulatory structure because that will only drive crypto offshore, which is not gonna be a a form of safety for US investors.
3: You talked about all those regulations in the US, but what are the checks on your international business?
5: We are regulated in over 12 different regulatory structures. eToro is one of the most sophisticated risk managed um, firms globally. We function in, as I said, 11 regulatory structures. We are regulation and sort of compliance first, company first. Our risk management is very sophisticated. And so ultimately, you know, we think that that is the only way to have an enduring platform and business globally as well as in the U.S.
2: Luli, I guess that's my question about this market and about um, businesses like eToro is how much are you reliant on... Uh, even indirectly, the hype around cryptocurrencies, the dollar value of cryptocurrencies, the availability of multiple coins, right? Because as uh, consumers, retail investors lose some trust in the overall narrative about crypto changing everything in the near term, do they migrate to more traditional exchanges where they might find some security?
5: Yeah, I think, again, in this space, traditional exchange is a is a, is a arguably sort of like what, what does traditional exchange look like for a digital asset provider as well, right? I think it's the model that matters. Do they have a sophisticated risk management structure? Do they commingle customer assets? Is, is, is the, are the, Do they have other regulatory obligations, right? The fact that I'm regulated as a broker-dealer influences how we run the business at large, right? So I think that those sort of like check balance questions are important. And I do not believe that all players are colored the same way. I think that ultimately, we win when there is smart regulation, and we welcome that. Smart, clear regulation is the way to go. The, the thing that, I again, I would like to stress is that when it's not uh, one that is adaptive to this technology, it could end up driving activity elsewhere, and that is not going to protect the retail investor.
1: Uh, speaking of retail, I mean, we can point to other episodes in the crypto space that have, you could argue, would... would uh would keep the marginal buyer from getting interested, whether it's a hack or something else. But I wonder if you think there's something about this particular round of news that might make a would-be investor think twice.
5: Yeah, you know, anything, you know, think of like the hot kitchen we're in right now, right? Monetary policy that's tightening, wars around the world. It's not helpful, you know, an election cycle. It's not helpful to have one more sort of grain of sand, and this one being a fairly sizable one, creating noise. It's not, it, it creates distrust. So I, it's unfortunate. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think as an industry we have to do is to just bring a sense of gravitas because this technology deserves that. You know, one of the things that I feel really strongly about digital assets and digital, this technology of blockchain is that it has the power to revolutionize a lot of things for regular people. And so we all as executives of these, of this, and stewards of this industry have to treat it responsibly for that promise. Lily, thanks for your insights today. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. We're going to have a lot more
1: on the moves we're seeing in crypto when MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor joins us tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. That's going to happen at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Dow's down 200. Tech Check is back in a moment. Let's get a gut check on Roblox today. Daily active users up 24 year on year, but the losses were more than 30% greater than analysts had been expecting. Average bookings per daily active user down 11. Stock has obviously been crushed over the last year, reached a market cap of nearly 80 billion in November of last year. Today, that number
2: right around 20 billion. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Closing out the hour with another earnings mover. GEN, that's the company formerly known as Norton LifeLock, is up 5.5% this morning, posting a top-line beat with earnings per share in line with expectations. Joining now in a CNBC exclusive, GEN CEO Vincent Pellett. Uh Vincent, welcome. So uh, you did this Avast acquisition. It seems to be a big part of the strategy, particularly cross-selling. How do you do that with a slowing economy and stubborn inflation?
10: No, absolutely. So uh, with Avast, we brought the the two leaders of consumer cyber safety because when we talk about cybersecurity, we are solely focused on the individual, the consumers. We now serve over 65 million paid customers and have 500 million users. And cybersecurity has evolved from where we're coming from, which is really device protection or security online, to enabling you to have your identity better managed online or your privacy better controlled when we come together with Avas, we'll have the opportunity to sell a much richer portfolio covering all three pillars I've just mentioned to all customers and users we have in our install base.
2: And you seem to be really trying to do that profitably. You said uh, on the call that you're focusing your marketing on getting higher average revenue per user um, versus customer count. So does that mean less discounting? Uh, how do you go about spending that in a way that, that's got higher ARPU?
10: We are a very disciplined operational company. We focus both on the top line and the bottom line, as, as, as you know. In terms of using our marketing budget, is really about making sure consumers understand the benefit of having a full cyber safety plan to protect them. Most of the consumers today understand the risk but are willing to sometimes compromise uh, for a little bit better use on on the digital uh in the digital world um, and so we want to educate on the portfolio we can offer. We have a very um, ROI base in terms of marketing spend and we either direct market to consumer, really targeting the right profiles, or we go through partners with financial institutions, with uh, insurance companies and provide a full, fully-fledged solutions which include a cyber safety element. And so we balancing our omni-channel uh, distribution strategy to reach out the five billion people that are connected every day to the internet.
3: Vincent, we've seen um, some more weakness in cybersecurity stocks over the last few weeks, and this is an area of tech that has held up better or been more resilient this year. What are you seeing in terms of deal cycles and demand? Have you noticed any market slowdown or more scrutiny in recent weeks and months?
10: Well, the reality is that the hackers are not slowing down. Maybe the economy is, maybe the inflation is up, or the the, the interest rates expenses are up, but hacking is up too. And uh, we've seen over 500 million of cyber crimes hitting consumers uh, last year, and 80 million of them got their digital identity stolen without without them knowing it. And then the proceeds of these um, actions are being resold on the dark web, and a year later, you could be a victim of a of a hacking event. Uh, without you knowing it and your identity and credit card purchased on the dark web and reused by bad actors. So that need is definitely present. Um, So even though the consumer sentiment may be down, we definitely see a strong need in the long run for a full cyber safety as our daily life becomes fully digital. Yes.
2: Finally, it seems to me that uh, security sales to consumers often lag PC sales.
10: Yeah, John, you 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 sound cut, so hopefully I can I you can hear me. Yeah, perfect. So you question if I understood it was, hey, PC sales was done, is cybersecurity for consumer going to have the same effect? And the reality is that we're not directly attached to the security. The device security is where we're coming from 30 years ago, but we have really evolved towards a human-centered cyber safety, which is really about you, your life in the digital world. And we even provide email guidance or other products that protect you in the cloud without even going through a devices. So we, we are, of course, correlated to the macro level environment, but not directly to the PC shipment.
1: Vincent, appreciate that very much. Uh, look forward to our chat next time. Uh, good, uh, good radar, both internally and externally. Thank you. Uh, just Thank a few you. seconds to go before we turn it over to the half D. We've been in the red for most of the morning, pretty much, though, on the SP circulating around 3,800. And uh, crypto continues to be uh, the story of the day, along with Disney and Meta, as we did briefly uh, take out uh, yesterday's intraday low.
3: Yeah, the crypto story likely far from over as well. There's another Coindex report saying that maybe. CZ took a look at the books and maybe wouldn't be doing this, citing a source. Um, it's happening very quickly, John. We'll see how it all works out with Bitcoin just above 17K, Carl.
1: Yep. Uh, busy night, a night to, again tonight with between uh, Bumble and Blade and Rivian and Beyond Meat. And of course, CPI coming up in the morning. So the week's not over by a long shot.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx.